Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. Good morning, kids. I'm here with a story for you. And this true story comes from the Bible. That's right. This story is about two people. Or maybe it's about one awesome God. You can decide when I'm done telling the story. The first person is a guy named Cornelius. What's his name? Cornelius. That's right. He lived a long time ago. He was a commander in an army. And he was Italian. Got it? Now, the Bible says his family knew God and loved God and respected God, that they all, his whole family, prayed to God and that they gave generously to people in need. Now, you can ask Abby this later, or maybe she's going to tell us later, but I'm wondering, how does Cornelius know God? He was Italian. He was not Jewish. And this was a long time ago. So I don't know if Abby has an answer, but that's what my question is. At that time, Jewish people were the ones who knew God and obeyed all the rules about God. The other person is a guy named Peter. You know Peter, right? Yes, Jesus' friend, the one who knew Jesus, saw Jesus live and die, and then come alive again. And then Peter spent his time talking to people about Jesus and sharing the good news about Jesus to Jewish people. This was important. All right, we also know that Peter was a good Jewish person. He followed all the rules. He knew the rules about what you could eat and what you could not eat. He knew the rules about who you could eat dinner with and who you should not eat dinner with. The Jewish people wanted to obey God by following all the rules, and they were learning that it wasn't the rules that made their hearts clean. It was Jesus. Okay, let's get to this story. So one day, Cornelius was at his house in the afternoon, it says. I'm not sure why the Bible included that, but it tells us at 3 o'clock precisely this happened. He had a vision, a very strange vision. It was an angel, and the angel came to him and told him to go find a guy named Peter. Now, Cornelius did not know Peter, but that's what the angel said. And as soon as the angel said it, Cornelius obeyed, and he sent his men to go find Peter. Now, meanwhile, they traveled for a whole day. The next day, while they were traveling, Peter was praying on his roof and feeling hungry when all of a sudden he had a vision. Now, I don't know why the Bible tells us that he was hungry, but that must be important. He was hungry and he had a vision. So, in Peter's vision, he sees a sheet with all kinds of animals on it, different kinds of animals. And in his vision, a voice says to Peter, go ahead and eat all these animals. And Peter, since he's a good Jewish person and obeys all the rules, he says, no, I will not eat these, answer, these animals. You know I have never disobeyed those rules. And this happens three times. The sheep comes out, go eat the animals, and Peter says no three times. Now, At the moment that Peter's wondering, what could this mean? And he's thinking about it. He's interrupted by three men who are calling his name. And the Holy Spirit comes to Peter and says, go ahead and go down and go with these three men. 
Now, I know your parents teach you not to go with strangers, but this was the Holy Spirit, so it was okay. (laughs) Then Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and when he gets there, all of Cornelius' family and friends, Cornelius has invited everyone he knows to come to the house. And Peter gets there, and he says to Cornelius, why did you ask me to come? And Cornelius tells him about his vision. And at that moment, Peter realizes what his vision means. He realizes that his vision was telling him that God loves all kinds of different people. Even people who are not Jewish. So Peter talks to them about the good news about Jesus and welcomes them into God's family even though they are not Jewish. This was a big deal then. Then the Holy Spirit comes on all of Cornelius' family, and Peter baptizes them, which was amazing. It was an amazing trip. Then Peter heads back to his house, and when he gets there, he tells the believers what happened, and they are shocked. They can't believe that Peter ate dinner with people who are not Jewish. They can't believe that Peter wasn't following all the rules. But Peter explains all that happened. He tells them about the visions and the Holy Spirit and their love for God. And the rest of the believers agree that Peter did the right thing. And the church grew and grew because they spread the good news to everyone, even people who are very different. And I like to think that I know the good news about Jesus because of Peter and Cornelius. I am also very different. And when I hear this story, it helps remind me that I can share the good news with anyone and everyone that Jesus loves them, just like Jesus loves me. All right, if you could open your pew Bible up to page 752. Our scripture today is Acts 10, verses 1 through 16. And then read along with me. Cornelius calls for Peter. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send man to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Peter's vision. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. 
kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Well, thank you both. Those are some good questions, some of which I have answers for, some of which I I don't necessarily have the answers for, but we're going to talk more about it this morning. Before we get into the gospel, um, we want to take just a moment, I want to take just a moment to thank you all for how um, you celebrated with me and acknowledged the transfer of my credentials from the denomination where I was serving into the Wesleyan Church. I was not expecting a cake, but I was very thankful for cake. (laughs) It was delicious cake that we had. Um, So thank you for that. What you may not know is that also at our district conference, when we had the ordination service and acknowledged that, there was another acknowledgement that took place that day, and that was of Corey's 25 years of service to our district. That's a long time. That's longer than some of you have been alive. So I think it's appropriate for us to take a moment to acknowledge that here as well and take a moment to celebrate that so you can give him a hand. And you can enjoy a cookie after service because we have cookies in acknowledgement of that. And I think some of them are chocolate chip, which is only appropriate since that's the cookie he wants at all times. (laughs) So, have you ever been caught off guard by the inclusion of something unexpected? Maybe you showed up at your family reunion and someone brought a new game that you hadn't played before and you gave it a shot and it turned out that everyone really liked it and became part of the regular lineup. Maybe it was a pairing of two ingredients you hadn't tried before, like blueberries and lime, or pears and parmesan. It could even be a different genre of book that was introduced to your book club, or um, a new fishing lure that you ended up catching a lot with, so it became part of your regular rotation. Scott knows something about that. (laughs) Or maybe it was a flavor shot that your barista recommended that changed your regular coffee order for weeks to come. Small inclusions like that can bring a little spice of life to our everyday lives and cause us to find some joy in unanticipated ways. So as you've been hearing through our kids' story and through our scripture reading this morning, we're talking about some inclusion of the unexpected today as well. Um, But it was an inclusion of far more significance than board games or fishing lures. Last week, Pastor Sam preached from Acts chapter 9 about the miraculous conversion of Saul, who many of us know as Paul, and then following that account... Luke turns his attention back to Peter and his travels around the country, away from Jerusalem and toward the sea. I think I have a map that you can see. Okay, so we've got Jerusalem is kind of in the middle, toward the the Dead Sea. And then Peter starts traveling toward the coast, heading west. So he visits the town of Lydda, where he heals a man, Aeneas, who's been paralyzed for eight years. And then he raises a beloved community leader, Tabitha, from the dead in the town of Joppa. And then he stays there for a little while. So it's about this time, about 30 miles away in the town of Caesarea, which is north. If you follow it up from Joppa, you can see that. So the town of Caesarea, about 30 miles away, this is where the angel appears to the man named Cornelius. Now, The town of Caesarea was known as the head of Judea, where the Herodian kings and many of the Roman officials lived. So it makes sense that Cornelius, as a centurion of the Italian regiment, would be found here. Luke doesn't waste any time in introducing us to Cornelius. He tells us in Acts 10 to he, Cornelius, and all his family were devout and God-fearing. 
He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Now, some commentaries will tell us that it's unlikely that Cornelius was a Jewish convert because you couldn't really do that without losing your rank in the army. So we're not exactly sure about how exactly he practiced his faith or what that looked like. But what we do know pretty definitively from Luke is that Cornelius is a man whose heart was turned toward God and was actively seeking to follow him. Luke continues in verse 3, telling us that one day at about 3 in the afternoon, Cornelius had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. So Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. So Cornelius does as the angel asked, and he sends two of his servants and an attendant up to Joppa. Now, here's a little bit of curiosity. At least I found it curious this week. You remember Philip? We've mentioned him a few times over the course of this series. In Acts 6, he's one of the seven who's chosen to help oversee the distribution of food to widows. And then in Acts 8, Philip is the one who's traveling throughout Samaria, um, preaching about Jesus and healing the sick and casting out spirits. And then later in that same chapter is where we read about Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts 8 concludes by telling us that Philip was, as Philip was baptizing the eunuch and bringing him out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And it just strikes me that apparently Philip and the eunuch were more comfortable with spontaneous teleportation than you or I might be, because right after that's, that happens, Luke tells us the eunuch didn't see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, approached Azotus and pr- traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So all that to say, Philip was likely in Caesarea around the time that we get to Cornelius in Acts 10. So it's reasonable to wonder why God wouldn't choose to send the nearby disciple to Cornelius rather than outsourcing the job all the way to Peter, 30 miles away in the town of Joppa. Now, I won't presume to be God. Maybe Philip wasn't in Caesarea any longer. He could have been teleported someplace else. Who knows what the Holy Spirit was doing? But maybe it was that Philip as a Greek Jew who had been sharing the gospel with outsiders like Samaritans and the Ethiopian eunuch, maybe he was all ready to open to those who were on the fringes of Judaism. Whereas Peter, on the other hand, was a prominent representative of the Jerusalem church of solidly Jewish Christians, who, as we'll soon see, have much more difficulty involving Gentiles like Cornelius in the New Covenant community. So we find Peter on the next day, the next day on the rooftop praying. And at this point in his life and ministry, Peter has come a long way. Think back to when we first met him. He's gone from a fledgling disciple under the leadership of Jesus during his earthly ministry to denying Jesus, to being restored by Jesus, to preaching the Pentecostal message, to now having a significant apostolic role in the church. He's been stretched in a number of ways as he's witnessed the growth of the church throughout Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, including people that he would have never anticipated being part of the family of God. Even here, we can start to see some of the groundwork that's been laid in Peter's life. Acts 9.43 and 10.6 tell us that he's staying with Simon the Tanner. And according to Jewish custom, tanners who worked with dead animals to turn their skins into leather, they would have been considered ceremonially unclean. Yet Peter's been staying here with Simon the tanner for quite some time. 
God has clearly been doing some work in Peter's heart to loose his ties to the way that things have always been. It's on this rooftop where Peter is praying that he receives a vision. And the more I've studied this, the more humorous I find it, the little insights you get into Peter's relationship with God. (laughs) Because God could have chosen in this moment to just give a very basic and bland command to Peter, like, hey, Peter, listen up. Uh, I love Gentiles. I would like you to like Gentiles too. But he doesn't. Luke tells us in Acts 10.10 that as Peter was praying, he became hungry and wanted something to eat. So it almost seems like God has like this little wink and a smile as he decides in this moment to give Peter a vision of food because he's hungry. So let's talk a little bit more about this vision. Beginning in Acts 10.11, we read that he, Peter, saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Now, for those of us who are not used to following Jewish customs regarding food, we might struggle to understand why this was so strange for Peter. So let me try to translate this a little bit to our context. When I was in high school and living in West Africa, our volleyball team traveled to Ghana for a tournament, and then on the drive back, I remember our coach, Mr. Weduda, had a stop at a roadside area got out of there in the middle of nowhere. He got out with the driver, Justin, and they purchased a special treat to take home for dinner. Three very large bats. And so I remember looking out the window as these bats were being tucked into a cardboard box that was then loaded on top of the car to be taken back with us, and thinking to myself, ew, bat meat for dinner? Ooh. Andrew and I, along with our families, have had several similar experiences when we've been served caterpillars or donkey meat or chicken feet. This is, this is just not the stuff that we eat. That's, that's not what makes me hungry. So this sheet of animals would have similarly shocked Peter. Culturally, some of the foods on that sheet would have been as strange to Peter as eating a tarantula would be for you and me. But then add on the layer that these, were, these foods were not only strange, but they were forbidden to eat. And you might start to understand how Peter might be feeling in this particular moment. So God gives Peter this vision of a sheet of animals, some of which Peter considers taboo, and he says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now here's where you can almost see the wheels turning in Peter's mind, because throughout the Gospels, we have seen Peter presented with unusual circumstances, and he boldly tries, and then epically fails sometimes. For example, in Matthew 16, Jesus tells his disciples that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter steps up and says, never, Lord, never. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus then rebukes Peter because, of course, Jesus knows he must die and rise again. In Matthew 17, Peter's with James and John when Jesus is transfigured before them and Moses and Elijah appear talking to Jesus and Peter doesn't understand what's going on, so he just stands up and says, um... Lord, it's good for us to be here. Um, If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But Peter's missed the point of the moment yet again. And before he knows it, Moses and Elijah have disappeared, and Jesus has changed the subject. Then in John 13, at the Last Supper, Jesus kneels to wash Peter's feet, and Peter refuses, thinking himself unworthy of being served by the Savior of the world. But Jesus again corrects him and explains that unless Peter allows Jesus to wash his feet, Peter can have no part of what Jesus is doing. Now, I think we can give Peter some credit for repeatedly sticking on his neck and trying and trying and trying again in spite of failures. 
But in this moment, faced with this sheet of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds, you can almost feel this kind of bewildered and somewhat frenetic internal processing, and he decides to go with the safe answer. He defaults to what he knows to be true from Jewish law and says, Surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Then, much to his surprise, Acts 10.15 tells us, The voice spoke to him a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. So Peter's understandably puzzled by this vision, and he's still thinking it over when Cornelius' men show up at the house looking for him. They explain who sent them and why, and the next day, Peter is setting off to Caesarea with them, along with a few believers from Joppa. When the group arrives at Cornelius' home, Peter enters, which is no small detail, given that it would have been against Jewish law for Peter to even enter the home of a Gentile. But Peter has taken the lesson of his vision to heart. He, Peter, said to them, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. He then opens the door for Cornelius to explain why he sent for Peter, and so Cornelius reiterates this vision that he's had, and then says to Peter, now we, meaning Cornelius, and all of his friends and his family that have gathered there together, we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. I don't know about you, but I almost feel a heavy pause there. as Peter's kind of taking in this moment and what's happened, what God is orchestrating together, what's happening in this room. You can see Cornelius' vision colliding with Peter's vision and unveiling this new reality of what the family of God is to look like, a family that includes both Jews and Gentiles. In that, that kind of heavy moment, I could almost picture the eyes of all the men and the women and the children just kind of staring at Peter. <laughs> okay. What do you have to tell us? It causes Peter to respond by proclaiming the gospel message that I will echo in proclaiming to you today. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how, Jesus and how um, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how we went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a, car- a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day, and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then comes another unexpected moment. The Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and all who had gathered to hear what Peter had to say. They began speaking in tongues and praising God, and it caught the believers who had come with Peter completely by surprise. Luke tells us they were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even now on the Gentiles. And Peter is now thoroughly convinced that the kingdom door is open wide to absolutely anybody 
And he says, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So what is it that we're meant to do with this story? What does it reveal to us about God? How are we to respond? I'd like to offer a few suggestions. The first thing that I think this passage reveals about God is that our God breaks down barriers. Remember that Luke was a Gentile, as were many of the first readers of his book. And as Pastor Corey has been reminding us, we too fall into the category of Gentiles. Had these ethnic and racial barriers not been broken down, we would be studying Luke's account as outsiders looking in. We'd be learning facts and stories and kind of chuckling along with certain things, but the gospel message itself would be out of our reach. But time and time again in these chapters, we see God breaking down the barriers between Jew and Gentile. In Acts 10, 15, God himself says to Peter, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Then in verse 34, Peter, in response to Cornelius' recounting of his vision, says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Again, later in verse 47, Peter, following the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Cornelius and his household, says, surely no one can stand in the way of them being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Then later, when Peter's explaining what happened with Cornelius to the believers in Jerusalem, he says, if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Paul, too, writes later in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Our God breaks down barriers of ethnicity, of class, and gender, but he also breaks down barriers in our hearts. You see, the vision that God gave to Peter and the evidence of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Cornelius and on others who had gathered with him that day would have been deeply challenging to the Jewish believers. It would have been almost impossible for them to, incom- for them to comprehend that Gentiles were going to be included into the family of God. And you could argue that this is why Luke records Peter and Cornelius' visions repeatedly throughout Acts 10 and 11, and why there are so many details that are included in there about how Cornelius got his vision at 3 in the afternoon. Peter got his at noon. There's a lot of precision included in here. It can even lead us so far as to say, as John Stott did, that the principal subject of this chapter chapter is not so much the conversion of Cornelius as it is the conversion of Peter. Peter is the one who needed the barriers of his heart broken down. And so it leads me to wonder, who is it that I deem to be an outsider to the family of God? Where do I draw lines of in and out that God himself might challenge? Do I, whether consciously or not, exclude people from God's grace based on whether they dress that way, look like that, listen to that kind of music, hang out with those people, smell that way, live that way, make those choices, go to that place, live in that neighborhood or that part of the world, 
share that social media post, vote for that candidate, hold that viewpoint, or disagree with me on that issue? And what barriers do I put up that an outsider would have to overcome in order to be an insider in my mind? Think back to the story of the conversion of Saul that we talked about last week. Saul had not been a friend to the Christians. He had been at the stoning of Stephen, holding coats so that others could more easily hurl their death blows. He breathed out murderous threats against God's people and dragged them from their homes to imprison them. When word of Saul's conversion got out, a lot of the believers didn't buy it. Saul would preach the good news of Jesus as the Son of God in the synagogues, and the believers responded with side-eyed glances and questions. When Saul tried to join the disciples in Jerusalem, the believers there were afraid to let him in, convinced that his conversion had not been genuine. Saul would have some hoops to jump through for these believers if he were ever to be accepted as part of them, let alone ever be fully trusted. But not so with Barnabas. Barnabas believed Saul's conversion was real and took him under his wing. He's the one who brought Saul back to the apostles and backed up Saul's claims about his conversion and his fearless preaching in the name of Jesus throughout Damascus. And then when the gospel started to spread in Antioch at the end of Acts 11, Barnabas was sent to confirm, confirm that the conversion of the Gentiles there was genuine. And when he found this to be the case, Barnabas went looking for Saul and brought Saul with him to minister alongside him for a year in Antioch. Barnabas knew our God to be one who breaks down barriers. He didn't call impure what God had deemed to be pure. He didn't play favorites. He didn't play favorites. He didn't stand in God's way. Instead, Barnabas recognized that no repentant heart is excluded from the family of God. Second, we can see in this passage that God draws his people together. Think back to the beginning of Acts 10, when the angel appears to Cornelius. The angel calls out his name, Cornelius responds, and the angel replies that his prayers and his gifts have been, come up as a memorial offering before God, and then the angel tells him to send some men to Joppa to find Peter. And it seems that God's adding in some unnecessary steps there, because he's got an angel face-to-face -face with Cornelius, he could have just had the angel deliver the gospel message. It's not like this angel is unfamiliar. He could have been among the chorus of angels, you know, announcing the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. I don't know. But instead, God sends for Peter to come and be part of sharing the good news with Cornelius. Because it's part of his barrier-breaking plan to draw his people together. Later in the chapter, specifically in Acts 10, 20, we can see a shift in language that's used to describe what's going on. God doesn't describe Cornelius' men as being sent by Cornelius. God says that he is the one who sent them. Because God is ultimately the one who's orchestrating this whole thing. It's God who's orchestrating Cornelius and Peter's encounter as part of his barrier-breaking plan to draw his people together. Then a few verses further down, Luke describes Peter leaving with Cornelius' men to head, down to head up to Caesarea and, notices that some of the, and notes that some of the believers from Joppa went along. It almost seems like Peter knows that something might be up, something might happen when he goes to Caesarea, and so he's taking some other believers along with him so they can experience it firsthand. And sure enough, these believers got to experience something incredible, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Cornelius' household, astonished along with Peter at what God had done. 
The experience was not meant for Cornelius and Peter alone. It was meant for Cornelius and his family and his friends. It was meant for Peter and the other believers from Joppa. It was meant to demonstrate God's barrier-breaking plan to draw his people together. We've talked often here about how we live in an individualistic culture. We try to go it our own way, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, hold up a hand to others and say, nope, it's okay, I got this. And being an individualist isn't entirely bad. But what do we miss when we try to experience God purely on our own terms and in our own individual lives? Cornelius' family and friends may have experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at a different time, but what would they have missed if Cornelius had made his meeting with Peter a private one? Surely Peter would have shared the story of what happened with Cornelius and the other believers, even if they hadn't been there, but what would they have missed if Peter hadn't taken them with him along to Caesarea to see it themselves? I think more often than we realize, God has something unique that he wants to do in us together. But we miss it because we're so caught up in doing things on our own. You may experience a measure of God's power and presence on your own, but what might he have to reveal to you as you allow him to bring you you closer to others? What more might he have for you as you gather in small group at Sunday morning worship or around the table? that you might never be able to experience on your own? What barriers might we see him break down in our hearts and our minds to understand all the more deeply that no repentant heart is excluded from the family of God? Finally, this passage shows us that our God pours out abundant grace. We can't overestimate how mind-boggling and world-altering this experience would have been for Jewish Christians. In these verses, we can see what's been described as four divine hammer blows, all aimed directly at Jewish racial prejudice. First, Peter's divine vision, where he's told to kill and eat animals that for millennia have been forbidden to Jews. And then he's further told not to call anything impure that God has made clean. Hammer blow. Second, the divine command for Peter to accompany Cornelius' men back to Caesarea without hesitation. Traveling and spending time with Gentiles would have been completely out of the norm for the Jews. So it's yet another hammer blow. Third, the divine preparation that God did in Cornelius' life in advance of Peter's visit. God invited Peter to play a crucial role in what was happening, but the divine interaction was not limited to the Jewish believers. Cornelius, too, experienced an angelic visit. Fourth hammer blow, the divine outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Cornelius and his family and friends, Gentiles, who the Jewish believers would have never believed could experience such a thing. And it's all grace. Grace that God gives to Cornelius and his friends and his family as he welcomes them into the family of God. It's grace for Peter to work through the mind-boggling, world-altering paradigm shift. Grace for the believers in Jerusalem to hear Peter's testimony of what happened and respond not with objections, but with worship and praise to God. It's all an outpouring of grace, abundant grace. You've probably heard the saying that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We like to say it to each other as a reminder that before Jesus, we are all sinners. We all need God's mercy. But as commonplace of a saying as that is for us, the first century Jewish Christians would have disagreed. 
Throughout these first chapters of Acts, we have seen questions thrown around about whether or not non-Jewish believers should be required to be circumcised. The church hesitated to believe that the Samaritans became followers of Jesus until they sent Peter and John to confirm it. And even here in this passage, we see the believers in Jerusalem criticizing Peter for entering Cornelius' home and fraternizing with uncircumcised Gentiles. Now, to be fair, some of this hesitation may have been coming from a well-intentioned place. There may have been believers who were remembering the tragedies that God's people had faced in past centuries when the Israelites too freely associated with those outside of God's flock, resulting in losing their homeland and spending decades as exiles. So there's room for us to exercise wisdom in these cases. But don't make wisdom the dam that holds back grace. Instead, let wisdom be the banks that shape the unending flow of the river of grace that God is pouring out even on those that we don't expect. Obedience to God's leading will often come before our understanding. And once we have that understanding, it'll only lead us further to more difficult steps of obedience. But I pray that I will be able to respond as the Jerusalem church did after hearing Peter's testimony, that as my eyes are open to what God is doing, that my criticism will cease and my worship will begin. I hope you'll allow me to be so bold as to pray the same for you. Our God is a barrier-breaking God who draws his people together and pours out his abundant grace, and no unrepentant heart will be excluded from his welcome into his family. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that we, as Gentiles, are not excluded from your grace. That we, as sinners, are not exempt from your family. That you offer grace and mercy and forgiveness to every one of us. Continue to shape our hearts. Continue to open our minds to who you include in your family, even when they're people that we don't expect people that would seem so far from your grace. Open our eyes to see them as you see them, to love them as you love them. And that we would be ones who open the doors of your kingdom wide to everyone. In your name, amen. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more, and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.